Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3, and we'll pick up where we left off just a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 3, in that 19th verse. Once you have found Acts chapter 3, verse 19, if you'd be so kind as to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word with me this morning. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, reads like this. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham and in your seed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed to you first. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Father, this morning, our heart overflows with joy at the love that you have shown us through that old rugged cross that stood on that hill of Mount Calvary. This morning, as we reflect upon that cross, let it cause us to look inward into our heart And hear your word fresh and anew. Today, Father, as I stand in your pulpit to preach your word, I ask that you stand in me in your power. That today, the only thing that's seen is you and all of your glory. And we ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. few weeks ago we looked at the beginning of this passage Peter after convicting the Jews of sin of rejecting the Messiah had had told them about God's grace he had he had said to them repent and be converted they were the repent of of who they believed that Jesus was was and they were to repent of the sin of rejecting him as their their Messiah that they had been looking for they were to repent of of killing him upon a cross and that was the part that they were to do. And, and then he told them to, to be being converted, if you remember. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. It's something that's done from the outside in. And he says to, to allow the truth, to, to allow the truth that they, they knew now about this Jesus to, to convert their lives to that new creation it talks about in the, in the New Testament. They they were to no longer to depend on this law for their salvation. They were no longer to look to one who was to come and set up this kingdom. They were to allow the truth that, that Jesus was God's son and came to give them forgiveness to convert them, to, to change their life. And just by his choice of words, we realize that this is an ongoing experience they they were to begin with this repenting of their sin and were to be changed by the realization of this gospel message it wasn't just the hearing of the gospel and repenting but there there was to be this change this conversion in their life see jesus did not come 
just that they would have this new kingdom they were looking for. No, Jesus came that they may be a part of this eternal kingdom of God. This eternal kingdom of God. And now, now Peter steps into the realm of, of explaining to them the results of this repentance and conversion in their life. And this message should ring loud and, and it should ring very clear in our hearts. You see, why the need to convert? What is the difference in me because of conversion? What is the eternal difference that matters in this conversion? Peter gives them five results of this conversion that would change their entire perspective and should change our entire perspective about this Jesus and what he came to do. Today we'll look at the first couple of those. The very first thing that he tells them, the very first result of this repentance and conversion in their life is that your sins may be blotted out. We see that in in verse 19 when he says, Repent therefore and be uh, converted that your sins may be blotted out. This is an interesting choice of words that I think sometimes we don't get. We don't use the word blotted out very often, but they would have fully understood what Peter was trying to say to them. See, until Jesus came, until Jesus showed up on the scene, the forgiveness of sins was not a permanent thing. See, until Jesus came, it was not permanent at all. See, every year, every year on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people would go to the temple and have a sacrifice made on their behalf, the behalf of the priests, the behalf of the temple, and the behalf of the nation. There would be this, this Day of Atoning. See, the priests would take this, this goat, there would, there would be two brought, they, they would cast lots, and they would, they would take one, and they would, they would slay that, that goat, and they would, they would spill its blood. The, the death of that goat and the spilling of the blood signified the covering of the sins of the people and of the nation. Then that second goat, that second goat that would be selected, the priest would lay his hands on that, on that goat, and And he would confess the sins of the people, the nation, over that goat. And then they would take that goat and they would send it off into the wilderness, never to return. That was called the scapegoat. You see, that that scapegoat represented the removal of this sin from their presence. So there was a slaying of the, the goat that covered the sin, and there was the laying of hands on that scapegoat and it being sent off that, that represented this removal, this distancing of sin from this people. And every year, every year, this had to be repeated. <laughs> the cleansing of the temple, the death of the goat for sins, the sending of the scapegoat in the wilderness to remove the sins. And the people recognized, the people recognized that this was a covering of sin not a blotting out. To us, it doesn't seem very significant. But if you think about this term blotting out, it actually refers to the way things were removed in the writings of the day. This word blotting out, it it talks about their writings. It brings to mind how things are removed. See, in our day and time, we use ink to write on paper. That ink contains a certain amount of acid, so when that ink is put on the paper, it it bites into the paper so that it stays. It's it's more permanent. (coughs) That acid causes this bonding effect. So in order to remove a word from writing that is done in ink, we must have something to cover it up. This great invention, whiteout. Remember whiteout? 
Until whiteout came along, you'd be writing a paper, you'd get to the middle, you'd make a mistake, and you had two choices. You could, you could mark it out and hope the professor didn't fail you, or you could ball that one up and throw it away and start all over again. But this whiteout came along. We were able to cover over, over our mistake. That, that's why there was this great invention. This great invention in this thing called the typewriter. When it came out, it came out this invention within the typewriter that was a tape. A tape that when you made a mistake, you could hit a button and the, the typewriter would back up and you could type over whatever the letter was. How many remember typewriters like that? Yeah, there's a couple of old people in the place. I remember that. Well, what a great invention. So you'd be typing along, you'd make a mistake, you'd back up, you'd hit this button, and you'd type right over top of the letters. So it was basically covering up. See, it didn't remove the mistake. It only covered the mistake. And what it allowed you to do was go over top of that mistake now and, and type in the correct word or the correct letters. See, in the Jewish economy, that was very similar to how forgiveness of sin worked before Jesus came along. See, they would go about their daily lives, and in their daily lives, there would be things that they would do that would be sin against an almighty God. And, and then on this day of atonement, the typewriter would back up, erase that sin, and allow them to start over, allow them to start fresh and new. So they, they saw this day of atonement, this day of atonement as a covering of their sin. Let's look at how they did their writing to understand this word blot out. See, for us, it still doesn't make a lot of sense because even when we think about blotting out in our writing today, we still think about the covering up. Of course, we're doing it on a computer. I guess blotting out may be the thing. You're typing on a computer, you make a mistake, you back up and you hit the button that's called delete. Remember that delete button? Greatest thing ever put on a computer, as far as I'm concerned. If you saw my notes laying up here today, you'd realize I didn't use the delete button quite enough. There's still a lot of marks across words. But this delete button removes. But, but if you look at how they wrote in that day, it was kind of interesting. They, they took this uh, papyrus or, or, or vellum, and, and, and they would write on it in this natural substance that was, that was made from all natural things. And, and, and they would write on top of this, well, this particular ink that they used did not contain acid. So it actually just laid on the surface of these writings. That's why it's so difficult to find today original writings. That's why those, those scrolls that they found in those caves that we got the opportunity to go see were so wonderful because it was a very arid climate and these, these things were stored inside of jars so humidity had not gotten to them so it didn't ruin uh, these writings. And, and since this ink had no, no acid in it, it just laid on top of the papyrus instead of sinking into the surface. This meant that if you had something that you didn't like in your writing, you would just take a cloth and you'd put a little water on the cloth and you could just blot out the word. It would just remove the ink from the surface of the paper. It was gone. It was as if it had never been there. The original word never existed. So when he, when he says this to him, think about it in the light of what what Peter is telling them is the result of their conversion. He's telling them that their sin, that for so long, had for so long had only been covered at this day of atonement, now had been blotted out. It had been blotted out. It's as if it had never existed. I'm sure they were reminded of David. 
David's writing in Psalm 51, 9 when he says, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. So understand, when David wrote that in the Psalms, there was no blotting out. He, he never saw, he never witnessed that blotting out. He had only witnessed that covering of sin. And by the way, that covering of sin was a symbol. It was symbolic of something to come. We all know what that is because when we look at the cross, we look at it from one side. When they looked at the cross, they looked at it from a different side. They looked at it from the side of covering. We look at the cross from the side of blotting out. And see, David knew, even when he wrote that, when he says, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, he understood there was coming a day. There was coming a day that sin just wouldn't be covered. There would be no need to repeat the covering process every year because it was going to come a day that God would pick up his cloth, wet it, and blot out his sin. What a beautiful picture. See, David sought. David sought for more than a temporary covering of sin. He sought for complete removal of sin. Yet in the Old Testament, in that works righteousness system that they had, covering was all that there was. <laughs> See, the Jews never understood that there could be a blotting out of sin, yet they should. They never understood that there would one day be this opportunity that their sin would be completely removed, yet they should. The great prophets, as I read, it says that, that God had foretold through the prophets. He had spoken through these prophets. It named in, in that uh, short few verses, it named Moses, it named uh, Samuel, and said those that followed. It, it named Abraham. It, it named these prophets. It named these prophets that had spoken of this blotting out. Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the, the forefront prophets that spoke of this coming Messiah. You know, you can read in there about his birth. You can read in there about his death. You can read about all those things that were to come years and years and years later that, that Isaiah had prophesied. In Isaiah 43, 25, he says this, I, speaking of God, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In Isaiah 44, 22, he says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Oh, what beautiful words. What beautiful words. If you understand, Jesus didn't come and die on a cross that his blood may temporarily cover your sin. He came that I, even I, may wipe away your sin. You see, God had told the Jews that he was the one who would not just cover their sins, but would wipe them out as if they never existed. And aren't you glad that God wipes out our sins? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just cover our sins? See, the promise that God made to the Jews, he also made to us. Flip back to Psalm, Psalm 103. I'm going to quickly read some verses in Psalm 103. Starting in verse number 1, it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is David. This is David writing a psalm about praise for the Lord's mercy. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like 
the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. He acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. (laughs) That's a good place for an amen. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. Another great place for an amen. He goes on to say, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If there's a passage of scripture you want to memorize, may I submit that one to you. See, David He recounts, first and foremost, these benefits. He's thinking about God in his life. He's thinking about all these things that God has done. And he started in verse 3, and he says, there's this forgiveness. In verse 3, he also said there was healing. In verse 4, he said there was redemption. In verse 4, he also said loving kindness and mercy. In verse 5, he said there was this satisfaction that comes in knowing God. And in verse 5, he says there was this renewal, this renewal of strength. He goes on in 6 through 10 and he praises God for his faithfulness. He says, even though you execute righteousness and justice, even though you do that, God, in verse 8, he says, you are merciful and gracious. You are so slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He says in verse 10, you don't deal with us according to our sin. You don't punish us according to our iniquities. Why? Because you're merciful and gracious. Then he proclaims God's holiness. He speaks of God's holiness whenever he says in verse 11, Heaven, this place that you are at, is high above, high above all others. You see this picture of a a king sitting over his kingdom. In verse 11, he also says, So great in his mercy towards those who fear him. He says, "If, if, If I fear you, God, your mercy is just overwhelming to me. And then in verse 12, he says, in verse 12, he says, you've removed, you've wiped out my transgressions. That's that blotting. That's that taking of the water and wiping it off the page as if it never existed. He says this God that is, that is high above all things and is righteous and, and holy and has the right to judge because he is judge, chooses to blot out chooses to blot out my sin and he doesn't stop there he says he doesn't just blot out in verse 12 he also says he cast it as far as the east is from the west how far is the east from the west on a straight line eternity eternity see it's not that he just blotted it out It's that when he put it on the scapegoat and sent it away, it was never coming back. It was never coming back. It was cast as far as the east is from the west. When David looked at God's forgiveness, he recognized God didn't just cover sin so that he could bring it back up again later. No. He recognized God forgave sin and remembered it no more. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that that sin that you've fallen at the foot of that cross on Calvary's hill and asked for forgiveness for and know that Jesus Christ's blood has given you forgiveness? Aren't you glad to know 
that God will never bring that back up to you again? When he forgave it, he threw it as far as the east is from the west in the depths of the deepest sea, never to be remembered. See, church, we have a problem that God doesn't have. We come to the altar. We ask forgiveness of sin. We accept that forgiveness. And three days later, the devil whispers in our ear, do you really think God forgave you of that? Do you really think it was fair to God to ask him to forgive you of that? And a couple of days past the time that we find forgiveness at the foot of the cross, in the back of our mind pops back up this sin. You know, God doesn't remember. There's a song that I love, and it's called, What Sin? What Sin? It's an old southern gospel song where the writer of the song comes before God, and he says, God, don't you remember? And God looks at him and says, What sin? What's in? See, church, we've got to realize when we're forgiven, we're forgiven completely. The only person that's going to walk around remembering that sin is going to be us, not God. It's the devil's way of keeping you out of relationship with God because if he can keep you concentrating on that failure in your life instead of forgiveness of God, he's got you right where he wants you. You see, and it says that David remembered he thought about when he when he looked at this forgiveness of God he knew that God not only forgave but God chose to never remember Jeremiah Jeremiah is a wonderful prophet a wonderful prophet and in Jeremiah chapter 32 in Jeremiah chapter 32 he prophesied these words in the 33rd verse he wrote this but this is the covenant, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It's time that we repent and be converted for the blotting out of sin. And then we need to remember. We need to remember that God did it for us in Christ. In Christ. In Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2. He writes these words in the 13th verse. He says this. And you. Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, it's time. It's time that we... Repent and be converted. It's time we remember that which God has done for us in Christ. If you've repented, if you've repented and, and are, are being converted, God has forgiven you of your sin. And it says not only did he forgive you of your sin, he took that sin and he put it out of the way. And where did he put it? On that cross with Jesus Christ. He took that sin and nailed it to the cross. That's why Jesus... That's why Jesus suffered our affliction. That's why Jesus had to 
the thorns shoved down his head in the form of a crown. That's why his arms were outstretched. That's why his feet were nailed to a cross. That's also why on that cross. It's also on that cross he pushed up against that nail and said, Father, it is finished. You see those sins that we've been forgiven for that were nailed to the cross? Jesus said, that which you have placed on me for forgiveness, Father, it is finished. And because he has done this for us, Romans 8, Romans 8, 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know what Paul's telling that church? If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've come to the cross for forgiveness and you've repented of your sins and you are being converted, then those sins were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. When Christ died on that cross and said, it is finished, it is finished. And now today you can stand in Him before God without condemnation. Without condemnation. Why? Because the sin wasn't simply covered. That sin was blotted out. See, the first result of conversion is the blotting out of our sin in our lives. And the second result of that conversion is the kingdom will come. Think about, think about what the Jews standing before Peter were searching for. We know enough about the Jewish community to know that they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah to come. Why then, when the Messiah came in Jesus Christ, did they not accept him as the Messiah? There was a reason. They weren't looking for a Messiah that was going to hang upon a cross and blot out their sins. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to come and rule and reign and set up a new kingdom. The Jewish community was looking for this Messiah that would ride into town and drive out the foe. They would come in, he would come in and take over and set up a new kingdom of which they would be a part. A kingdom that would give them this relief from oppression they had experienced for so many years. They had been exiled from their homeland. They'd been put in bondage in Egypt. They couldn't find a place to call their own. It wasn't until, what, 1960-something that they actually got a homeland back. So they had been, been forced to undergo all these, these oppressive ways. They were living under the weight of this law that they tried to keep. These 600 and some odd laws that they were trying to keep. They were living under the weight of this law that no man, no man had the ability to live up to except Jesus Christ. They, they had been under this fact that they were a minority to those who ruled. They were a minority to those who ruled the community. As a matter of fact, the Jews were seen much more as possessions than people. Reading a book right now, I'd commend to you to read sometime. It's about Bonhoeffer. It's about Bonhoeffer, and it writes in there that Bonhoeffer was was a, a, a pastor, a, a religious leader, a, a Christian during the times of Hitler. During the times of Hitler, and it's interesting to see the story uh, spell out in the life of Bonhoeffer as they were they were working through this this whole Hitler being forced into uh, control in Germany and and how this Jewish community was being uh, exiled because of their race, their nationality. It didn't matter if they were professing Christians; they were still seen as a Jew, as a as a as a piece of property. And we know how the story plays out. We've seen the pictures. We've seen the hundreds of thousands of kids' shoes stacked up in boxcars. 
we've seen the doors thrown open on places that that uh, untold hundreds of thousands of people were put to death just because they were Jewish. You see, this 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 whole weight of government has carried long in the life of Jews. And that, that weight we see in the Hitler's time was the same weight that was upon them in, in the time that Peter and John were standing there in the portico with them. They were still just a piece of property. They wanted some relief. They, they wanted some justice for what was going on in their life. When they looked for a Messiah, they said, here comes that this one that's coming. Here he comes to give us this relief. They they thought that this relief would come in the form of a Messiah, God's chosen one that would come and produce or set up this new kingdom for them. A kingdom where they would be favored by God, which would make them favored by the people. A, a kingdom where rest and peace could be theirs. And that's not much different. It's not much different than what we long for today, is it? It's not much different. In the, in the world we live in today, it's becoming more and more difficult to live a Christian life. Have you noticed? Have you noticed it's a little more difficult today than it was 10 years ago to call yourself a Christian? See, the foundation of this nation that, that was set upon Christian beliefs is so quickly eroding away that we're becoming the strange ones. Instead of it being the foundation of beliefs of how a, a, a democratic society is built and, and how it, it interlaces itself and works together, we're now being shoved to the side. See, how are we to find peace in a nation that protects unborn animals with greater consequences than it does unborn children? Do you realize to go take an egg out of an eagle's nest and bust it open will send you to prison? Yet in many states today, you can kill a child and be applauded for it. It's hard. It's hard to stand on values. How are we to find rest in a world that's constantly attacking our beliefs? We look at the way man and woman are built. We read our Bibles. We realize the only way mankind can go forward is for one man and one woman to unite in marriage and have children. It makes logical sense and absolutely makes theological sense. Yet in our world today, if you stand up and say that, there'll be hundreds saying you're a bigot. If it wasn't completely against the Bible, I think it'd be an interesting thing to try one time. Give them about 100 years of man bearing, marrying man and woman marrying woman and see what's left. Last time I checked, no children come out of either one of those. Just physically the way we're built, it only makes sense. But God said, it's one man, one woman for life. Yet when we have that stance, we're called haters. How are we to live a healthy and productive life with a threat of all that we know to be truth coming under attack? You see, we look for, we look for peace. We look for peace in the world that we live in. We look for a place that we can fit in in Acts, in Acts chapter 3, 19. He said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Then he says this, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I believe Peter is saying that conversion brings the result of the kingdom coming. Why has God not set up his kingdom on earth yet? There's still one more. There's still one more. 
that needs to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's still one more that's going to come. See, the prophets of the Old Testament had continually spoken of the coming kingdom. They'd reminded the Jews that, that there would be a time when all things would be restored to that former glory. And specifically, they pointed to what we call the millennial kingdom. That millennial kingdom. That time when Jesus would return and set up this earthly kingdom for a period of a thousand years or so here on this, this earth. And, and how does repentance and conversion tie into this kingdom that is to come? First, in order to have a kingdom, you must have a king. Remember, remember what he had said to, to the Jews. Jesus came as, as the king, but you, the Jews, rejected him as the king. Remember the sign that hung above Jesus' head on the cross? What did it say? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. See, to have a kingdom, you must have a king. In repentance and, the, and conversion, the Jews would come to recognize that Jesus is that king. See, that's part of the repentance and conversion process. And by accepting him as king, they would be converted into this kingdom of his. The same rings true for us today. We must realize there can only be one king in our life. There can only be one king. We must understand that we're in the place that we're in today because we took the king off the throne and put ourselves in his place. That's called sin. And that kingship of ours as head of our own life, doing our own thing, has broken our relationship with a holy God. That's why we must repent of that sin. We must place Jesus as king over our lives, thus converting our kingdom to his kingdom. Second, in order to have a godly kingdom, we must realize it's in God's time frame. It's interesting there that he says that uh, times of refreshing may come. The word that's translated times here is this word kairos. Kairos. There's many words in the Bible that are translated time. But kairos means a, a, a predetermined or a set or a fixed time. It's not as in a span of time like a season, but it is a specific time. It's a time that's been set by God. And that time is not for us to know. That time's not for us to know. Remember how Jesus answered his disciples whenever they said, Hey, when, when is this kingdom going to show up, Jesus? And we read it in Acts 1-7 when he said, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He said the only one that knows is God, is, is the Father. So it must not be important for us to know the exact time. What is important is to know that that time is fast coming. That time is fast approaching. In fact, we should live each day as if today is the day of the new kingdom. Let me ask you a question. How different would you approach the house of God this morning if you thought today was the last day? How different would you ride to church have looked? How different would Sunday school class have looked this morning? How different would you respond to the word of God today in this place if you thought today was the day that Christ returned and set up the new kingdom. The important thing about the timing of the kingdom is that it's in God's hand. God, through the pen of, of Paul, gave us a clue about his plan for the coming kingdom. And it directly relates to this rejection and, and uh, how repentance and conversion takes place with the Jews. In Romans chapter 11... In Romans chapter 11, very quickly, he writes about this rejection and about the fact that it is not final. 
he writes about this rejection over starting in the 11th verse. And, and he starts off of that and he, he says that, that this rejection, this rejection juice that, that you have made of Jesus has actually become riches for the Gentiles. He says, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's, a, that's an echo of the fact that it says salvation came first to the Jews and when rejection happened, it went to the Gentiles. And I find it interesting that Paul's the one saying this because he became the mouthpiece of the gospel to the Gentiles. He goes on to tell the Gentiles that, that they are not the root of the tree of salvation, but that they are grafted into that tree. And you find that in the 17th verse. That means you weren't born a Jew, but you've been grafted into that tree tree they are made partakers of the goodness of god along with the believing israelites and he admonishes the gentiles and in verse 18 to not look down on those jews for their rejection then he goes on to verse 26 and he says this and so all israel will be saved as is written the deliverer will come out of zion and he will turn away ungodliness from jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's desire for the Jews is just as God's desire is for all of us that all come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. If we don't come to a saving knowledge, it's not because God doesn't desire it. It's because we, like the Jews, reject Jesus. Third, in order to have a godly kingdom, there must be a time of refreshing. A time of refreshing Ezekiel calls it in 34.26, showers of blessing. Isaiah calls it in 44.3, he will pour out water to those who are thirsty. Joel, in, in his prophecy in the second chapter of the 26th verse, says you shall eat plenty and be satisfied. When, when you look at this picture of refreshing throughout all the Old Testament prophets, you see this, this blessing, this, this quenching of thirst, this complete satisfaction. If there's one thing that the nation of Israel needs... <laughs> It's a time of rest and refreshing. But isn't that what we're all looking for? Isn't that what we're all looking for? I mean, at the end of the day, aren't we looking for rest and relaxation? There's only a few weird ones of us, I guess, that get up in the morning looking for more to do than less to do. You know, a time when the cares of this world just go away and are no more. A time when death no longer stings our heart. A, a time when our needs are met and our desires are satisfied. A time we live directly under the spout of God's blessing at all times. See, uh, Isaiah describes it like this in Isaiah 11, 6-10. He says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the faulting together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze their Young will lie down together. A lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra. And a weaned child will put his hand in a viper's den. They will not hurt and destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? Jesus. Who will stand as a signal for the people and his resting place will be glorious. What an amazing picture the rest we will have in the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Fourth and lastly, the fourth thing in order to have a godly kingdom is the presence of the Lord. 
in Acts 3.19, it says, Your sins may be blotted out, so times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing will never come from the efforts of man. It doesn't matter the laws that are passed. It doesn't matter the equality that's granted. It doesn't matter the acceptance that is extended. Refreshing only comes in the presence of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All of man's effort go fruitless. And the physical presence of Jesus happens when that kingdom comes. Revelation, if you know, the book of Revelation comes, uh, gives us this glimpse, gives us this glimpse of this new kingdom and what those days will be like. Chapter 5 starts off with a, with a picture of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, taking the title deed to the universe. And then in 6 through 19, you see the scrolls unfolding, and it describes how he will take back what is rightfully his from that usurper, the devil. And then in chapter 20, Then in chapter 20, we see the culmination of his kingdom. And the central figure in all of that, the central figure in all of those things is one thing. Jesus. Jesus Christ. And the peace that passes all understandings will flow over us because we're in the presence of the Prince of Peace. And for all eternity, there will be no more tears. There will be no more cares. There will be no more sorrow. There will be joy indescribable. So for the first two results of the conversion, you see your sins are blotted out and the kingdom will come. So I guess the question for the day is this. Have you repented? Have you repented? Are you being converted today? Have your sins not just been covered temporarily, but have they been blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ? And are you looking forward to the day that the kingdom will come? Does it bring you terror to think that Christ will come? Or does it bring this sense of peace, knowing you'll be in his presence? If not today, you can repent and be being converted. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.